You're listening to a podcast from Catalyst Vineyard Church, Aberdeen. You can find out more about our church, as well as more talks on our website, catalyst.fin. Thank you all. It's been wonderful to be with you this weekend and get to know more of you than before. We are so excited about everything God's doing in Scotland in these days. And uh, in fact, you know, it's kind of interesting. Things have flipped around. People used to say, can anything happen in Scotland? And now it seems like everything's happening in Scotland. (laughs) So this is the place to be. I want to take you back about 300 years. You know, I... If you want to know anything about me, my hobbies are like history. Like I'm just a complete uh, history nut because I love seeing the story. So 300 years ago, almost exactly 300 years ago, very close, there were a group of believers who, were, uh, who gathered at this place in, in Moravia, which is like a part of what is now Germany. And uh, they went there because the count there was um, willing to let them be there and worship in freedom, which was unusual at the time, to have that kind of freedom. And in fact, part of the reason they all came there is they were being persecuted from the different places they came from. So they all gathered together, and they built, he allowed them to build a whole new community. They, they called it Herrenhut. And uh, they built this community together. And wouldn't you know it, it wasn't very long they started bickering and fighting with one another. And it kind of started off with some little differences, like, uh, I didn't think you passed out the communion the right way, and, and, you know, you know, various, you know, differences in how they ran their services, you know. It's not that different from, you know, half the church says we should sing that song every Sunday, and half the church says let's never sing it again. You know, they, they started finding things to kind of have conflict because they disagreed on some things. And then pretty soon it degenerated and they were calling each other, you know, sons of the devil and, and so forth. And so finally the count, who's actually a politician, had to intervene. And he spends some time coming over on Sundays and takes over the preaching and basically spends a number of weeks preaching to them and rebuking them for their selfishness and their pride that was leading to all this conflict. So a few of them started gathering to pray, just like, God, you got to help us, like we're in a mess. And uh, they started praying. And then, on August 13th, 1727, uh, they recorded the date On that day, they gathered like we are this morning, and the Spirit was poured out. All of a sudden, seemingly almost from nowhere, the Holy Spirit fell on them, and the worship team was not able to continue to lead the worship. (laughs) They started falling on their knees, they started shaking, they started crying. Soon it kind of spread to the people as the Spirit began to come on different people and people were crying out and falling down and shaking. 
Um, the power was so strong. And here's actually a translation of how one of them described it, writing down what happened to them that day. He said, uh, Verily the 13th of August, 1727, was a day of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We saw the hand of God and his wonders, and we were all under the cloud of our fathers baptized with their spirit. The Holy Ghost came upon us, and in those days, great signs and wonders took place in our midst. They began to confess their sins to one another and apologize to one another and reconcile with each other. And he goes on, he says, from that time, scarcely a day has passed but what we beheld his almighty workings amongst us. A great hunger after the word of God took possession of us so that we had to have three services every day. Namely, 5 in the morning, 7.30 in the morning, and 9 p.m., because they all still had jobs. So those of you praying for revival, take note what you're really praying for. <laughs> so I, just, I just love that. Such a hunger for being with God and with each other that they had to be there three times a day. And he says... Even better, he says, everyone, everyone desired above everything else that the Holy Spirit might have full control. Self-love and self-will, as well as all disobedience, disappeared. And an overwhelming flood of grace swept us all into the great ocean of divine love. It gives me chills even now, 300 years later. It's just such a wonderful thing. You know, when, when, the, when the Lord comes close like that, it's like floating in an ocean of love. You know, somebody else wrote about that day at the time. He says, we left the house of God that day hardly knowing whether we belonged to earth or had already gone to heaven. That, folks, is the kingdom of God breaking in. When we pray, may your kingdom come, may your will be done, that, that's the kingdom coming. And, you know, their experience with the Spirit didn't end that day. As they said, it continued every day. They were like hardly a day was going by. They weren't seeing the works of God. And what happened was, one of the first things they did was they started a 24-hour-a-day prayer meeting. They, everybody took turns. They prayed around the clock, 24 hours a day. And that prayer meeting lasted for a century. Nonstop. They went over 100 years in this prayer meeting. And as they prayed in the prayer meeting, God would convict people of their selfishness and their pride and the other things that had led to their conflicts and their divisions. And they started repenting of all those things. And then in that prayer meeting, the 24-hour day, the Lord began to speak to them about the lost peoples of the world and the forgotten people of the world. 
And the first ones he brought to their attention were the African slaves in the Caribbean on the, on the sugar plantations, where the conditions were so horrific that the, the lifespan of people on those plantations was very short. And they felt like, we need to go and tell those people about Jesus. And the plantation owners were not very eager for them to come. Because, of course, when, if you preach the gospel to slaves, they become no longer slaves in their minds. You know, they become humans. They become children of God. You know, so it kind of undermines the entire system. But they insisted, we will come. And eventually two of them said, if you won't let us come voluntarily, we will sell ourselves into slavery and we will go as slaves. Eventually they went and soon others followed. And like everybody else there, a, a, the majority of the ones they sent to the Caribbean died in, in a fairly short time, but they did bring the gospel to those people. And then the next ones that the Lord put on their mind were the indigenous peoples of North America. And they were the first ones to send people uh, to the south, southeastern United States, the Cherokee and the Chickasaw people who were living there. And it's very interesting because it was on some of their voyages to those peoples that they met a man named John Wesley, who was convicted by the power of what God was doing in them and led to his own experience with the power of the Spirit a little bit later on. And then God began speaking to them about the Muslim peoples of the world and the people in Africa. And on and on it went. He would speak to them about the forgotten ones and the lost ones because that spirit of Jesus that leaves the 99 and goes to find the one kept coming up as they were in their prayer meeting and wanting, as he said, to be completely controlled in our lives by the power of the Spirit. God did this incredible thing. And all those things, that prayer meeting and the, the missionary adventures, you know, the things that they did are all the part of the income breaking of the kingdom. The problem is that so often we who have experienced the Spirit's power seem to lose it after a short period of time. We have a great weekend together. And then what comes of it? We have an experience, and then, you know, we're talking about that one experience 20 years later. You know, the church so often seems to slide back into apathy and human effort. And that hunger for God, that tenderness towards God and towards one another gets lost. And I often wonder, why is that? And I think the reason is that we have to continually, not just once, but continually choose to give the Holy Spirit full control over our lives. Galatians 5.25 says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. You have to keep walking with Him. It's a journey through the, meant to go through the whole of your life. It's not enough to have had one experience. It's not enough to have had a legacy. We have to keep walking with Him into the tomorrow. So how do we do that? 
Well, the first thing is this thing about giving full control over to the Holy Spirit. You have to give yourself, your life, your business, your family, your ministry, your church, back to God. About 35 years ago, I guess it would be exactly about 37 now, it was January 1985, our, my, our little church, which is about the size of this gathering here this morning, we'd been praying for three years for God to send revival to us. We prayed every which way. We prayed all night. We prayed in the mornings. We had prayer chains. We had to keep changing it up to keep people coming. But nothing happened. Nothing happened. And then, in January 1985, the Spirit of God fell on us. And it was like nothing we'd ever seen before. Um, I mean, there was an, we were gathered, and I can re still remember the night. You know, I can still remember we had fold, folding metal chairs we were sitting on, and the, as people were falling down, you could hear the chairs crashing. <laughs> And some people somehow got under the chairs and were shaking and crying under the chairs. And we, we were terrified, actually. It was, at first, it was sort of like, what have we done to our church? But then people started confessing their sins. And they started repenting to one another. And it was glorious. And then the leaders gathered and the Lord spoke to us shortly after the, it started. And he said to us, okay, you have the revival you've been praying for, but if you want it to keep going, you're gonna have to give the church back to me. You guys have only ever let anything happen that you had full control of ahead of time. And he says, I want you to give the church back to me. Now that was a big problem for me because I started that church so I could have a church I liked to go to. Like, I started that church for me. I was like, all you other people that came, it wasn't for you. It was for me, and you just happened to like the same thing. So now God wants me to give it back to me. And you know what? But the question is the same question we always ask when God confronts us. It was like, well, if I give it back to God, what if he changes it? What if I don't like it? Because God's like asking me to sign, you know, a blank check. He's not saying what he's going to do. He's just saying, give it back to me. And so I'm sitting there thinking, I don't want to do that. Like, well, what? what if? But for the life of me, I could not figure out how to say to Jesus, no, I'm keeping your church for myself. <laughs> so kind of through gritted teeth, it was like, okay, I'm going to give the church back to you. Whatever you do. Well, you know, God started convicting me of some of the things I needed to change in the way I was leading. And there was a list. <laughs> it wasn't just one thing. It was a list. And then he started changing the way our leadership was structured. And he started changing the way we did our worship. And he started changing the way we did our small groups. I was talking to my father, who was also a pastor, at the end of the year, and I said, you know, I don't think he liked our church very much. <laughs> because we gave it back to him, and he changed everything. And it was wonderful. 
it was so much better and so much more than I could have ever thought of or dreamed of. It was wonderful. But that's the process we have to go through. We have to keep giving what we have back to God and putting him in full control for him to take it wherever he wants. Whether we stay in our hernhut and pray in the prayer meeting or find ourselves going to the other side of the world to reach someone who's lost, we have to keep putting him in control. And you know, when you give it all back to God, when you put him in full control, when you say, God, your will in my life, no matter what, there is no longer any power of anxiety over you. Anxiety has no more control because you've already given it all up. There's nothing you need to save. So that's the first thing. We got to give it back to God. And not just once, but regularly. Second, we have to learn to wait on God. Because it's all about living in dependence on him. Living in dependence on him. Waiting upon him. You know, sort of the wider vineyard family. Our kind of theme verse is John 5, 19. Jesus says, gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself, but only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. Like, if Jesus can do nothing of himself, what about us? Like, the only thing that really matters in the end is what God is doing. So we, we have to wait upon him and look to him for him to do things. You know, uh, we, when we first started our church, we were a, a bunch of college students and university students, I should say. Got to translate the language a little bit. University students... And, you know, young adults who'd just gotten married, that's who was in our church. And you know how it goes. They find each other, they get married, and then the next thing you know, they're having kids. And so, you know, the kids started popping up, and, uh, oh, we need to have a kids' ministry, which we never thought of. So we need to have a kids' ministry. And so we had this guy who was going to seminary in our church, and we thought, well, you know, he needs a job. Let's just hire him part-time. And and he can do the kids. His name was Dave Brown, and so we hired Dave to be our children's pastor, our very first one. Well, after six months, Dave came to us and said, um, I'm quitting in six months. I'm not called to be a children's pastor. In fact, I'm not sure I'm called to be a pastor at all. I'm going to drop out of seminary and go get a counseling degree. And at that point, I realized, oh, I probably really need somebody that's called, really called by God to our kids. Not just a warm body that can, we can stick in because they need a job. So instead of like trying, you know, to make a job posting and all that kind of stuff, I prayed. And I prayed for God to call somebody. But that meant I had to wait. I had to wait for God. And I prayed, and the months were ticking by. 
and like we were getting more kids all the time, you know, and I'm thinking, the date's coming and it's going to be World War III downstairs, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like what are we going to do, like this is a big deal, and um, so I'm crying out to God, and so I'm really getting pretty desperate at this point, waiting, like is God going to come through for us, is God going to come through, and so there was this night where we went to somebody's house. They'd invited a bunch of people over to their house for uh, soup and sandwiches. And we were all kind of sitting around talking, d doing soup and sandwiches. And somebody says, let's go around the room and everybody tell the other people the dream they have for their life that they've never told anybody. And my immediate reaction was, oh, that's going to be awful. <laughs> I just thought, this is going to be awful. Nobody's going to tell the truth. And, and it's just going to be really awkward if they do tell the truth. And, but of course, it wasn't my party, and I couldn't say anything. It's just like, uh, okay, here we go. So they're going around, and we get to this one woman. Her, she was an African-American woman. Who, and we didn't have very many uh, non-white people in our church at that point. Now we have many, very many. Um, but we didn't have very many at that point. She was there, and it was her turn. Now, the thing you have to understand, she was like a major executive at a Fortune 500 company. Like, she had I don't know how many secretaries that worked in her office. They picked her up in a limousine to take her to work for her commute to work every day. She had a PhD and all these credentials, and she was a high-powered very intelligent woman, like very successful, driving a luxury car when she wasn't driving in the limousine, and being like a huge success. It comes to her turn, and she says, well, my dream for my life is I'd like to work for Steve, and I think it has something to do with children. <laughs> my teeth nearly fell out. Like, I, it's a good thing I wasn't swallowing my food. I probably would have choked at that. I was like, did I just hear what I just heard? It's sort of like I couldn't believe it. So then the whole next week, I'm like wrestling with God, like, well, what's the, you know, what's my next step? And I kept envisioning me calling her up and saying, how would you like to be our children's pastor? And then naming what we were going to pay her. And I just couldn't do it. I just thought, I can't do that. Like, it's sort of like, talk about downwardly mobile. I just like, I thought, I can't. And so, you know, it's another Sunday. Another Sunday's gone by. I'm back home after Sunday morning, and I'm just agonizing. And finally, I say to God, I just can't talk to her about this. If you want her to be our children's pastor, you're just going to have to tell her yourself. <laughs> and about five seconds later, the phone rang. This is in the, you know, this is before we had cell phones. The phone rang, and it was her. And she said, I have had two dreams every night this week, and I felt like I should tell you what the dreams were. I said, okay, tell me your dreams. And at that point, I thought, he did. He did talk to her. I just knew this is going to be it. Here's the first dream. There was a plane 
that was missing a part that couldn't get off the ground because of the missing part, in, and it was in Chicago, and it had to taxi down the superhighway to her family's home in Kentucky to pick up the missing part so it could get off the ground, which I thought, yep, that, that missing part is you. And then the second dream was Jesus took her into her grandmother's house and into the basement, and it was filled with children. He said, you're to pray over these. And all I said to her was, well, you don't know, but we've been praying and fasting for six months for God to call somebody to be our children's pastor. And she started screaming on the other end of the phone. And she left all of that, left as it were the treasures of Egypt, and became our children's pastor and was our children's pastor for something like 25 years before she retired. Raised a whole generation of our children in the power of the Spirit. It pays to wait. It pays to wait for God to do it his way because I never would have asked her. I would have never even imagined that it would be a possibility. It was beyond what I could ever think. And that's the thing I want to say is when you, if you will wait on God, give everything over to him. He will bring to you things beyond what you could have ever imagined, better than you could have ever imagined. Honestly, you have to take risks. Like, you have to take risks. You have to keep saying yes to God. You know, for the Moravian people, the, you know, the folks in Moravia, the inheritance, like, it was like nonstop risk. You know, go to the Caribbean to share the gospel, it's almost certain risk. Um, go to the native peoples that nobody's ever gone to, go to the Muslim world. It was all risk all obedience to Jesus. But when we follow the Spirit, great things happen. One thing leads to another, which leads to another, which leads to another, and great things happen. You know, uh, later this week, I'm going to cross over to Northern Ireland and visit some of our churches in Ireland. And the way it began was I came over here in 1987 with uh, Wimber, who was doing two conferences, a big one up in Belfast and a big one down in Dublin. And, and then he divided all of us who came with him, which was about three, 400 people from vineyards in the United States. And we were all assigned to go to different little churches and groups around Ireland on the weekend to do like little mini Holy Spirit conferences like what we just did here. And I was assigned to this little Catholic youth group down in Dublin. So when I got to Belfast, this young guy comes up to me, and his name was Sean. He's a, a early 20s. He's an accountant, and he's leading this little Catholic youth group. And he says, you know, I'm, we're, you're going to be visiting us next week. You're coming to us. We wanted to just introduce ourselves. We're really looking forward to having you come, you know, all that stuff. And while he's talking to me, I feel like the Lord says, I'm going to do something special with him. Something's going to happen to him. So then I thought, well, I want to be there when it happens. 
So I sort of started stalking him the rest of the conference. Wherever he sat, I sat across the aisle from him. <laughs> I'm like following him around. And nothing that much happened to him in Dublin, but we, I mean Belfast. But when we got to the second conference in Dublin, all of a sudden, one day in the worship, the Holy Spirit fell on him. And it was like he was lifted out of his seat. He started shaking and crying, and then he's going down. And I thought, this is it, this is it. And uh, long story short, I mean, the power of God was going through him for about two to three hours. We had to drag him out of the meeting because he was making too much noise. And uh, God called him to plant a vineyard church. And so he went to, uh, came to America, went to seminary, then came and got trained at our church, did an internship at our church, and we sent the, him and his wife back to Dublin to start the first venue church in Ireland. And because we got that one, then there was this little group of people up in Belfast, and uh, they said, well, we want a vineyard church up here. What about us? And long story short, you know, I ended up going there and finding, finding the right person, and we ended up starting the church in Belfast. And now we have something, I don't know what, 20, 25 vineyard churches in Ireland. Um, all because of just the taking the risk of praying for one person. A, ca a, little, a young Catholic tax accountant. Okay, so you say yes even to the littlest things and they, can, and they become something you know, because the Spirit of God is in control instead of you. If we, that is actually how we're meant to live. We're meant to live a life that's beyond human explanation. It's not just meant to be a little blip for a good weekend. It's meant to be a continual process. That's how we walk in step with the Spirit over the whole time. And if you'll do it, it'll be worth it. Now let's all stand.